Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mom listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's news editor, Paul Wallbank. Hello, Tim. Features an opinion editor, Josie Tutty. Hello. And our advertising and comms reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hi, Tim. Plus, coming up later, Viv and Josie will be chatting to Mediacom CEO, Willie Pang, about atoning for the past. Yeah, we, we, we cop our past sins uh, on the chin. Long-term contracts in a short-term world. If I wrote you a contract today, a lot of the stuff that we might be doing in five years' time, it doesn't even exist. And living in a world with TMA, too many acronyms. I've always been the uh, the chief purveyor of acronyms myself. <laughs> but first, to the week's topics. Optus hands over World Cup streaming to SBS. JC Deco's APN bid. Aboriginal Victoria's ads get blocked. And the ABC's Michelle Guthrie comes out fighting. So, the hashtag on everyone's thumbs this week was Floptus, as Optus failed to fix its World Cup streaming issues and was eventually forced to hand over the reins to SBS. Paul, this is the PR disaster of the year, isn't it? It's a multi-layered cake of disasters. Uh, There's layer upon layer of disaster for Optus on this. First of all, they were saying how great their streaming was going to be. And we've been there before with the English Premier League and a number of other events which have crashed and burned dramatically. But on top of that too, Optus have been marketing for the last few, probably last year, on how much better than Telstra they are. In fact, going as far as running out a campaign, winning in the courts, and uh, then now crashing and burning badly. So let's talk about how things unfolded this week then. So we kicked off with the World Cup um, last week, and... At the first, the streaming seemed to go all right, and then Australia played, and the whole thing started to wobble. And over the weekend, systemically, people were getting more and more problems on their phones, on their streaming devices, saying um, that they can't access their stream, they can't see the action that's happening, and a crescendo of social media outrage uh, welled up around them. So the moment when I really realised this was a mainstream story was when it became so serious that Malcolm Turnbull had to pretend he was interested in football. It's really tragic, isn't it? Um, And this happens every now and again. He gets interested in something other than rugby union. So so yes, he uh, he got very angry about it and made a phone call to the Optus CEO, who foolishly said that it would be fixed shortly and you have the feeling that the whole phalanx of engineers at Optus held their heads in their hands and realised they weren't going to be home for the weekend. So uh, I think where it became a a textbook debacle, omnishambles if we want to use the in the thick of it (laughs) phrase, was for me the moment that they they waved the white flag and actually said actually we're going to hand the rights back to SBS so this is on TV as well so that there isn't a risk of it not working tonight. That's right. And this is another layer of that layer cake of disasters is that the telcos have been trying to run this convergence thing for years now. And once again, we're probably 10 years into that buzzword. And once again, the telcos have failed on this. So this is something I'm glad you mentioned this because this is something I've been sort of it's occurred to me I've never really quite understood it and thought it was me, but now I think maybe it's them. Um, it, uh, over the years at various points, you know, I've I found myself, you know, writing about, thinking about, you know, Telco's ambitions to be 
content players. You know, every now and then somebody within Telstra gets given that role and then leaves a year or two later and you never think think that you can see much evidence for what they actually achieved. You know, we now see it with Optus. So on the one hand, there's this, it never seems to quite happen. On the other, last week we saw the AT&T deal to buy um, Time Warner nodded through, which is seems to be about, you know, sort of putting everything together in one kind of big vertical mix. Where are we at? Is there ever a time where telcos will genuinely become content players here in Australia? I have long maintained that this is a fantasy of telco executives. So you think about it, telco, it's really a utility. It's like running the power company or a sewerage company or whatever. They have these fantasies. Sewerage seems appropriate. <laughs> well, they have these fantasies of being in the glamorous world of the media. And then when they try their hand at it, they're not very good at it. So, um, Abby, there is a big PR aspect to this, which is your beat. Um, what advice do you think PRs would have been giving uh, Optus this week? Look, the first thing that everyone says in a in any crisis is always to respond quickly and and give your audience some form of explanation. But not only that, also tell them what is going to be coming next. Tell them how you're going to fix this. Tell them what the problem's going to be in one week time and give them as much information as possible. The less questions they can ask, the better. There's still, I feel like there's still a lot of questions to be answered in this case though. They still haven't exactly explained what the technical problems were at all. No one's quite sure why they couldn't make it work. Yeah, that's a good point. Let me bring you in this one on, on, on this topic finally, Paul. What's your best guess on what went wrong? If you, if you had to explain it in as close to layman's terms as possible. <laughs> My guess is the content distribution network, which is the hardware at the back end that distributes all of this out there. They under-provisioned it because in Australia, it's insanely expensive compared to the rest of the world. And you only have to be short by, say, 5 or 10%, and the whole thing falls over. It's that classic class is completely full thing. So I think that's what happened. They were cutting some corners at the back end, and it came back and bit them royally. I suppose looking on the bright side, at least it was good news for SBS. Yeah, so this is possibly the only time SBS has been the knight in shining armour. Um, but they have been achieving rare main channel double digit shares, which is quite rare for them. So good news for SBS. Good news for public service broadcasting. JC Deco has been making headlines as it makes a complicated situation even more complicated by uh, joining the various bidding wars going on in outdoor. So the latest twist in this this week is that JC Deco would like to buy APN Outdoor, who in turn would like to buy AdShell, who in turn also have a suitor from Omedia. Hope that's nice and clear. <laughs> um so, Paul, like most multi-billion dollar deals, there are some conditions included. And these ones coming from JC Deco are quite uh, interesting. So they're after full unanimous support from the board to recommend things to the sh- to the shareholders. Yep, which so is... they would like the turkeys to vote for Christmas. <laughs> exactly right. And uh, the, the force the turkeys to vote for Christmas. And then on top of that, they want APN to drop their bid for AdShell. And that's probably the big fly in the ointment there, that uh, that really that's going to put a dampener on all the other shenanigans with it. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because if APN were to do that, that then gives Omedia a clear run at AdShell. And suddenly what we, we have is a market that had four biggish players, suddenly a market with just two very big players. 
each one of which owns a street furniture company because JC Deco and Adchell are the two street furniture companies. So if it were to go down that way, it completely changes the dynamic in the uh, in the outdoor industry here in Australia. That's right. And then we bring in the ACCC and the Foreign Investment Review Board, which were part of the conditions as well. So, yes. And, and of course, worth bearing in mind, the ACCC previously showed an interest, well, not only an interest, they blocked the uh, potential merger between O-Media and APN come together. That's right. And that's why the um, APN this morning said, everyone stay tight. Don't sell your shares. Don't panic because there's no guarantee this deal is going through. Now, the fascinating side story to all of this, I guess, is it's only a matter of weeks since James Warburton took the helm at APN Outdoor. Now, JC Deco already has a boss in Steve O'Connor. So the question then is, um, would James Warburton be out of out of a job if this happened in a few weeks that seems like very bad luck it does maybe you could get a gig at optus sticking with outdoor and indeed sticking with apn outdoor aboriginal victoria's deadly questions ad campaign was um was declined this week or certain ads from it were by apn outdoor um who decided that some ads were too controversial to run this was in victoria um abby what went on there This definitely did spark a lot of controversy overnight, Tim. Um, Basically, Clemens BBDO uh, partnered with Aboriginal Victoria, part of the Victorian government, to create a deadly questions campaign aimed at um, giving non-Aboriginal communities the opportunity to ask Aboriginals questions that may come across as ignorant or racist in order to to close the gap of knowledge. I guess it's a bit like that ABC series, you can't say that. You can't that. ask that. Yep. You can't ask that. Yeah, that'd be more accurate, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, so um, pretty much. So they have an online website, but most of the campaign was outdoor and the outdoor executions um, consist of questions. And I think there are about seven outdoor executions and two of them were blocked by APN Outdoor based on a recommendation from OMA, the Outdoor Media Association, who referred to the Ad Standards Board. So before we talk about what those questions that they couldn't ask were, it's probably worth explaining, although the Ad Standards Board basically makes the rulings on whether stuff's okay and follows the rules or not, the Outdoor Media Association does offer a service of giving their judgment beforehand on whether something is safe or not. But if you do ask them for their advice, you are then obliged to follow it. Yes. So the OMA then came back to APN and said two of the outdoor executions could be found in breach of 2.1 of the AANA Code of Ethics, which is um, meaning that advertising can't discriminate against or vilify a person or section of the community on account of race, ethnicity, nationality, et cetera, et cetera. So APN Outdoor then said, well, we can't run these And ads. one of the key controversial questions was that one of why can't you just get over the past? I'm not actually 100% sure on that. My assumption is that that's what it would be, um, but um, not actually. We, I don't think it's been confirmed which the two, what the two ads well, does this put the other outdoor companies, the ones that haven't yet turned it down, does this put them in a difficult position? So I think this is where it gets quite interesting because JC Deco was still running the ads. However, OMA has said that they've given this advice to all their members and JC Deco are members of the OMA. Um, so it's, it is quite interesting, really. But um, I mean, I guess Clemens are 
pulled the whole series from APN. Certainly suggests that JC Deco don't think the same way as APN Outdoor, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess the frustrating thing here is that the whole point of the campaign is to start these conversations, is to have uh, ask these questions that people are perhaps too frightened or feel like they can't ask. And that's and is now then being blocked because they're too controversial. So it's it is quite frustrating when we're struggling so much to have these conversations and it's they're being blocked before they've even gone out. And I think the really frustrating thing, certainly for me, about this is, as far as I know, Clemenger BBDO Melbourne, um, the team that worked on the campaign worked really closely with Aboriginal Victoria and with Aboriginal communities to make sure that these questions were all right um, and they were sense checked. And that was actually one of the initial questions created by the creative team. So sometimes um, one can also take a, a, a view that certain advertising campaigns are cynically created in order to be banned and then create coverage about the banning free free media you know you you were going to buy one billboard and then you get a massive headline do you think this is the case here look i think it this campaign by nature is inherently controversial i mean the questions that are being asked are controversial but i don't think you can avoid that in a campaign in this sense i don't think there is a way to be pg about it when you ask are asking hard so questions you, you don't think it was a campaign that was written in order to be banned no. So this week, the ABC's managing director, Michelle Guthrie, came out and defended the ABC's public status at a Melbourne Press Club lunch, which came just days after the rank and file of the Liberal Party called for the organisation to be privatised. Um, Paul, how? Uh, what did you think of her speech? Uh, I think probably a little bit too late, and um, it's really... Interesting that uh, she came out punchy in some parts, but the speech overall was probably not as feisty as really expected her to be. Um, wasn't putting that stake in the stake in the ground, that line in the sand, whatever you want to say there, and saying right, we are going to back the ABC. And this is a sort of growing drumbeat. More than you know, she's more than a year in now. I think of sort of whether she's doing enough to publicly defend the ABC, and there've been some differences of opinion on whether the way for her to win the debate is not to buy into fights with politicians who eventually eventually decide the funding, but to make the case behind the scenes mm. calmly and rationally, which arguably hasn't worked. And that was the thing that she did say during the speech. She said um, she... She refers to the people of Australia who regard the ABC as one of the great national institutions and deeply resent it being used as a punching bag by narrow, narrow political, commercial and ideological interests. But for me, like, I know she made that and you've, you've almost picked out the, and it's quite a criticism, that's one of the more interesting lines in mm -hmm. the piece. It, the speech to me read a little bit more like an essay that could have been written by anyone on why the ABC is a good thing. You know, it it didn't feel particularly passionate. It didn't feel like anyone's mind would be changed hearing it. Um, I, what would you say, Tim, if you were well, Michelle? Well, look, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I, I, and this is really unfair, is <laughs> I'd say exactly the same things, but I'd say them in Mark Scott's voice. Um, <laughs> because that's the unfair thing is, is maybe it's just because she's still relatively new in the role. But for me, I, you know, the, if, if, if 
ever anything about the ABC is posted on Reddit Australia, the comment thread is always all about how really this is a former Murdoch worker who's working from within to smash the ABC. Now, I don't buy that conspiracy theory at all. I don't don't think there's any truth whatsoever to that. But equally, I think, you know, she was sort of, she was hired, I think, to be a less polarizing character probably was 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 one of the criteria probably hard for someone who had a digital and commercial world background um which is all true but there there was just a weight and a heft to mark scott during his leadership of the abc and in fairness it may have only been because by the time i was writing about this sector he was already in place Mm. and you know had already hit his stride but it feels there's not the gravitas or the moral weight yet in that leadership, which is why we're beginning to see rank and file ABC staff talking about it. You know, John Fain had things yes. to say this week. Yeah, and John Fain, uh, he was very, very diplomatic afterwards of saying that uh, he had nothing more to add to it. The but, Melbourne uh, Breakfast. That's right. Post. But I, I've got a bit of sympathy here for Michelle Guthrie in that uh, she's uh, she's been brought in, and the Liberal Party have a habit of this over the years, of bringing in managing directors who uh, they see as being spear carriers for their own agendas. We had Jonathan Shire back in the was it nine, late 1990s. Who lasted so. very short time indeed he did and he was hopelessly ineffectual and um i was doing a lot with the abc at the time and he didn't really do much except uh bring in a lot of fear there but uh what michelle unfortunately has as well is that she as those reddit commenters are saying uh, has that um mark if you like of murdoch on on her and so there's always going to be that suspicion that she is an inside agent for them and of course she's answering to a board that is largely political appointees and they're trying to keep their people, happy, their constituents happy within the government. What do you make of the argument that commercial media have all had to make cuts? That's the reality of media now. It's just the ABC's turn. The ABC's always run on a shoestring. And back in my radio days, I used to see this all the time because I would do commercial as well as ABC. Commercial on the weekend would probably be more staff in a commercial studio at, say, 2UE or 2GB than there would be at uh, 702, well, ABC going national. And it's worth just wrapping up this point. So, the you know, the fact that the rank and file Liberal Party passed this motion, they'd like the ABC to be privatised, doesn't make it government policy. Um, is there any sort of logical argument to back this idea of privatisation in your view? None whatsoever. This is this is fantasies from uh, the neoliberal mad right wing of the Liberal so what, Party. So what's the argument against it? Why wouldn't it work? It simply wouldn't. Uh, you've got a national broadcaster that um, if you run it on commercial terms, you've just got another commercial network. And of course, um, and the issue with that is the commercial networks are already finding life, life tough. The last thing they need is another competitor. Exactly right. The only other alternative there is the US PBS model, which is has a number of challenges itself, although it would make it completely independent of government as well, which maybe the Liberal Party and the government should be careful about getting what they wish for on that front. Now, of course, the Liberal Party's argument is there's no economic case to keep it public. A, a public broadcaster shouldn't be looking at things from an economic standpoint generally. They're not there to make loads and loads of money. That's why they don't have advertising in the first place. They're there to, you know, promote culture, promote sort of things the Liberal Party probably see as more fluffy, but a lot of Australians would see as a very good thing. Thank you, guys. I'll let you get back to the news desk. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Thanks, Tim. Tim. So 
we are joined by Mediacom CEO, Willie Pang. Willie, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you've had quite a meteoric rise throughout the Mediacom ranks. You came on board as Chief Digital Officer and then you were Chief Operating Officer and now you're CEO all within a couple of years. Has that has that been a fun ride, a difficult ride? What's it been like? Oh, it's been an it's been an amazing ride. Uh, in so many ways, I'm 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 doing my dream job. Uh, I'm also doing three jobs at at one time. Uh, and most days, uh, you know, uh, most days I'm excited, and and some days I feel like the chief problem officer. CPO. C- I think, the CPO. I think there's a few media agencies that could do with a, a CPO. <laughs> uh, so your background is is digital. I remember you did a piece for us uh, about being the digital guy. How important is digital metrics to your role as CEO of Mediacom? I think it's, um, I mean, firstly, I'd say it's critical. um, And I've been very forthright in uh, articulating to our our business, but the industry more broadly, that my perspective is that, you know, if digital leaders are doing their job, then there shouldn't really need to be the role of a chief digital officer going forward. I mean, what's not digital? Uh, And if we look at the next sort of three to five years, and the trajectory that things like TV and print and radio and so forth is going, you know, how we access and consume media and then the, our daily lives. I mean, in pick for me a thing that doesn't have a piece of technology uh, tied to it. Um, so, so it actually massively helps me because, you know, we work with corporations across the country and, and uh, CEOs and boards and investors and analysts all care about how businesses are transforming themselves. I mean, it's right at the tip of the tongue for um, for for most businesses. So, so for me, it, I, I find that it it uh, it puts us in pretty good stead. And how do you deal with? Um, there's been a lot of um, controversies around Facebook's metrics, for example. They've admitted that they had a lot of mistakes with their with their ad metrics. Um, I know that Nielsen has admitted problems with YouTube as well. How do you deal with those problems on a day to day basis and make sure that you're you know getting the right metrics for your clients? It's, it's a great question, uh, look, Josie. Our, our view on it is, um, you know, the digital industry while. Most of us have grown up with sort of digital and technology around us. The advertising, the ad- advertising space, the publishing space is, is still pretty young. You know, I've, I've been, um, I think quoted as uh, saying that Facebook in many ways is a toddler as a business. And, and so we, I think we're, as an industry, we need to cut everyone a bit of slack and, and understand that it's still a developmental process. Uh, and also that the, in the eyes of marketers and, and business leaders, I mean, there's still very little knowledge about what's, um, you know, what's what. And there are tons of acronyms going around and, and, and how, how it makes sense and, um, is applied in businesses is, is still relatively poorly understood. Um, so there's, it'll take a bit of time still to, to get it right. And, uh, and there's a, there's a big, there's a, I think a big tipping point moment when, uh, metrics from traditional media, uh, and metrics and digital media all come together to become, you know, sort of one standard and that we haven't got there and that's the holy grail, but it'll come. It's just a matter of time. And Willie, in a sort of post GDPR, post Cambridge Analytica, post everything world, <laughs> is is digital dirty? Do, do people trust it? I mean, I know we can't live without it. Everything's digital. It's almost weird in 2018 to be saying all digital and separating that from anything. But it does feel like the spotlight is really well and truly on privacy and transparency and all of those things. So it must be difficult for a media agency to navigate that in 
in 2018. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's um, it's challenging, uh, and and the and the privacy con- the privacy conversation and how you know particularly businesses are using um, using a consumer data set to make decisions on how they kind of talk to their customers is um, it, it it's it's challenging in that. We don't, as an industry, I think, do a good job of helping consumers to, to get their head around the value equation. To me, it's just a, a value exchange. Uh, and most of us would say, you know, we'd be happy to give away some or all of our, uh, you know, our, our personal data if we're getting a disproportionate return in either the quality of product or the relevancy of the content that we're seeing. Uh, and I, I think, at a very simplistic level, if you listen to some of the questions being asked of uh, Zuckerberg by the, you know, by the Senate, as an example, uh, it's very telling because it says to me that the common consumer, uh, middle Australia, doesn't really know what they're getting in return. Uh, and the technology in the background, if you think about your experience with Google, I, I, this happens to me quite a bit as you're leaving the office and it sort of is syncing your calendar and it knows where you're going and tells you where your car is and how long it takes to get there. Like it's pretty freaky, right? But the tech, the tech is so good in the back end that you don't think about it. It's just become a part of day-to-day life. And maybe the conversation that we need to be having uh, more broadly is to help the population um, understand that the te- A, the technology is in play, and B, is that there's real value that you're getting there. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a massive uh, lipstick wearer, but, but I, you know, when I'm scrolling through the sites that I like, I don't necessarily want to see a ton of Revlon ads either. Uh, I'd rather see a car ad. And, and, uh, but I work in the industry. I understand, uh, you know, the, the value exchange there. But more broadly speaking, I think it's very poorly understood. It's such a delicate balance, isn't it? Because I hate how much information corporations must know about me. But at the same time, if I go onto my phone and it takes more than five seconds to load or Google Maps can't tell me where to go. <laughs> you totally cracked the shits. <laughs> or, or it served me an ad that I didn't want. I'm like, how very dare you? What are you doing? <laughs> Give me exactly what I want. Exactly, exactly. Um, to shift the focus a bit to media agencies, Mediacom is part of Group M, which is part of WPP. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on the holding group model and its sustainability and your stablemates, uh, MEC and Maxis, obviously merged to form Wavemaker. Do you think there are too many media agencies in Australia? And if there are, how can Mediacom stand out and survive? It's a, it's, um, it's a great multi-part question. <laughs> um, look, I, I think um, – are there are there too many? I think my my perspective is that uh, inevitably consolidation will come. There's new competition. Everyone sort of read about Accenture uh, and their stated ambitions to move into the sort of programmatic buying space. You, the wonderful Professor Ritson was um, hocking the McKinsey's report, telling brands and corporations that they should run their stuff in house. So that, and then there's technology companies who are walking into corporations saying, guys, you can, you know, we'll help you build your tech stack and help you figure it all out. Um, and in amongst all of that stuff, convergence has to come. It has to come because uh, the types of challenges and questions that brands are asking of us is increasingly becoming more complex. It's not as simple of, hey, as, as, as hey, I've got a buck. Do I spend 20 cents on Google or do I spend 40 cents on Channel 7? It's much more about how am I creating real consumer connection? And that is a very broad question. 
uh, and I want to sell more stuff and I want to build my brand over time. Uh, and so why I, I'm excited for us as a group because uh, we've got a lot of assets. We've got a lot of assets across research, advertising, data, media, creative. And if a client comes to us with a very broad, challenging question, we're probably best placed to be able to stick together in an agile basis. The, all of the, all of the sort of brain power required to come up with something really clever. Now, do we have quite the right structure to solve all of that right now? Probably not, but then I'd, I'd argue that we're probably six to 12 months ahead of everybody else on it. And look, I know it was uh, before your time, but back in early 2015, there was a Mediacom scandal, for want of a better phrase. Now, I'm sure you weren't the only agency engaging in the practices that were discovered and everything that came out about value banks and transparency and metrics, but you certainly were at the forefront of of the pushback on that. How have you recovered clients' trusts and made sure that your agency is operating in a way that's, you know, more amenable to the market? Yeah, so you look and, and um, you know, we 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 cop our past sins uh, on the chin. I think um, there's there's two levels of of response to that. One is, as Group M, we we would we would um, proudly beat our chest and say that we're probably more audited, more com- SOX compliant, more more self-regulated than any other agency group in the country. We take transparency um, incredibly seriously. And I think that on behalf of clients, the expectation should absolutely be that you know, uh, you know how we run our business, how we're spending your dollar, um, how we make money, I think is uh, also important. Uh, and and we do everything that we can to to communicate that back to our clients and then get their feedback uh, on whether or not they believe us because fundamentally, if we're trying to fight against a uh, you know the tide of margin compression, i.e., people want more for less all the time, and that's not just our industry; that's all over the place, as you guys would understand. Um, the only way to get around that is to say, look, guys, transparently, transparently, this is how we run our business and you want us to succeed and we want you to succeed uh, and share in it together. So um, touch wood, we've, been, we've, we've had very good feedback from the market and it, 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 I, would, I would hope that it's behind us. Now, the industry's issues with transparency are probably clearer in no place more than programmatic. And I know you've spoken in the past about the issues with programmatic. And to reference Ritson again, he has spoken out quite frequently oh, Professor Ritson. <laughs> Professor about Ritson. his issues with programmatic. And in fact, you wrote a piece on our site defending programmatic. Yeah. How do you respond to those people who say, I just can't trust it and I don't understand it? Yeah, look, it's... um. Look, I sort of say, look, the, the first the first step is you've got to understand it, right? And it is complex, and there are lots of bits of technology and lots of players in what what Ritson would describe as the uh, as the supply chain or most corporations. Uh, we need to do a better job as an industry to to help to help marketers and brands and clients to understand each part of that of that supply chain. Um, we ourselves are incredibly transparent on um, what technology we use, how we use it, and and the costs associated with that. Um, so that's sort of um, the 101 is is deeper understanding. Secondly, and I think more more excitingly, is that programmatic for me is uh, you know imagine a world where every piece of uh, every piece of advertising or creative or content or every every piece of, every opinion piece that you um, that you produced. Uh, Josie was incredibly 
uh, uh, personalized to the person who's receiving it, I think that's the holy grail. That's the holy grail. And programmatic for me as a, as a technology enabler to make that a reality is a critical first step. You know, have we, have we really turned that into a reality uh, just now? Pro- probably not yet. Uh, but that time has got to come in the next couple of years. And other, how, other, how do we do that? I, th- I think there's, there's a couple of things. One is um, the creative model, right, just to expand on this, is there's two things. One is delivery of this. So the programmatic ecosystem allows us to deliver the person. I, I know this is Josie, and I know that she likes a certain brand of car in a certain color, and she lives in a certain area, and so I can pick out the car. The second part of that equation is the creative and the story that you tell Josie when you know that. And to me, the industry at large is still pretty used to building 30 or 60 second TV ads and then repurposing. It's changing and it's changing quickly because clients are asking of, of, uh, of their agencies to get their head around it. But fundamentally, the structural challenge is that they, those business models in the traditional creative agencies, it needs to change. Because uh, you can have the best tech in the world, but if I deliver you a, a pretty bog stock, uh, if I can, if I let, let me give you a very simple analogy, if I can find a thousand different people, uh, and I gave you a way to connect with those guys and girls individually, but then I and then I sent them four bits of creative for those thousand, then you really haven't made it real. But at, th- at this current time, it's it's challenging to create content and creative at pace. How, how are creative agencies going to keep up with that then? I think they're. I think they're. I get. I think they're getting smarter. And I'll. I'll, I'll talk to to us as an organisation. Um, you know, over the last twelve months, we launched a global business called Hogarth. What it does is um, smart, quick, clean um, back end production for creative, and we can do it much faster, much cheaper and leverage a global resource base so that we can do this type of stuff at scale. Um, and then it allows for our creative agency partners uh, within the family to be leveraging smarter, cheaper production capability, but then having really smart strategists on the front end. And it's just the first step in getting to that, um, that utopia. This distrust of programmatic that Josie's been talking about is a large reason that a number of big brands are thinking of bringing certain elements of their media buying in-house. And you alluded to it before with Accenture launching its own sort of model to help brands do that. And I know that Carlton and United Breweries, which is behind the likes of big brands, including Corona, has some programmatic buying in-house. Does that trend worry you at all? It doesn't worry me. I, in fact, I, I find it um, strangely exciting and invigorating. I think um, I think brands will, you know, corporations corporations need to realize that that managing that ecosystem is one thing, and finding great technology to deploy into their businesses is is another thing. But then you need real humans to go and run this stuff and think through the implementation. If I think about the challenges for me in my job. Principally, it's about building. I mean, my job is pretty simple. My job is to is is to create an organisational culture and a team that can retain, uh, attract, retain, and grow talent in a way uh, that nobody else can, or at least you can't on the on the client side. And so, so we have a steady stream of the smartest thinkers who can drive the car. You can build your own car, 
but I can always give you a better driver. So that's 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 sort of my fundamental view on it. You've just mentioned that your job is is simple. I, I would tend to disagree, particularly that it really feels like it's picture palooza at the moment in the media space. Lots of global reviews are going on with big brands wanting to consolidate their global arrangements or bring it all under one holding group or, or one agency. And I know that the Queensland government is a client of yours and that tender is open until June 22nd from memory. Are you guys really busy with pitching at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's pitching. And so my global CEO, Steve Allen, always talks about the fact that new business and pitching is the lifeblood of the agency. I don't think that'll ever change. I, I think that the duration of con contracts has become shorter. That's partially a reflection of the pace at which the ecosystem is changing. So if you sign a 10-year deal now, uh, if I wrote you a contract today, a lot of the stuff that we might be doing in five years' time, it doesn't even exist. So to me, it makes sense that corporations are saying, guys, let's 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 shorten it down to sort of two or three year deals and uh, and make sure that that we're able to then take advantage of whatever new technology comes up. Um, that's challenging for our business because it uh, you know for all businesses like ours because it it means that we always have a steady stream of our smartest thinkers working on sort of pitching. But I think we need to transform, you know, ourselves in the, into that and lean into that new um, that new reality. So, could you spend your life pitching and also doing award submissions? <laughs> you you could, you you could, and I I think that uh, you know my guidance to my colleagues across the industry would be that that's a bit of a mistake. I think uh, if if you put the the client's need um, at the heart of your business and then be really obsessive on, on what success looks like for them, then the pitching and the rewards and the wins and, and awards that, that will look after itself. Josie, I know that you're a huge fan of acronyms, uh, and that Willie wrote a piece, uh, for us, I think it was last year about how many acronyms he comes across on a daily basis. You're our opinion and features editor. You must come across some crackers. Do you have any that you can recall that you don't like? By love, I think you mean hate. <laughs> um, I actually, there's just so many that I come across on a daily basis. To be honest, nothing's popping to my head right now, but Willie, I'm sure you can think of many. <laughs> my, my favorite one is TMA, which is there's too many acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> Still, there's not one, you know, one that I particularly dislike, but, uh, but, you know, we, we definitely as an industry have too many acronyms. Since the shift to CEO, have you been noticing more acronyms used around you? Oh, I, I, ha I, I guess I haven't because I've always been the, uh, the chief purveyor of acronyms myself. <laughs> so uh, I use it as a tool to bamboozle. Um, people when, uh, when, when I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Willie, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Josie. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Toodle pig.